Hello and welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Media and Technical Director at Bayside. This week, we are talking with Pastor Joe Feraldi, and we are starting our new sermon series, Revision. Today, we're talking about becoming what we can be. All right, so on the podcast today, we have Pastor Joe Feraldi. And we are spending our time in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now, in this new sermon series, Revision, we, we kind of have a goal. What, what, is, what is our purpose of, of revision here, Pastor Joe? I guess the best answer I can come up with to that is we're asking a question that is similar to a question we asked years ago. And... Uh, what we're saying now is, what would Bayside look like five years from now if we continue to allow God to have his way, uh, you know, to have hold of us? And so um, the leadership started asking this question really last summer uh, at a conference. And o- over time, we've been inviting more and more people into the conversation. And um, Pastor Ken has kind of taken point on it. And Kenny has... Uh, kind of come up with three statements with a keyword in each. Uh, one is becoming, the other, the next is advancing, and after that is overflowing. So in regard to the sermon series, uh, I focused on this first piece, becoming. And the idea is that before we, before we start talking about what we're going to do, we better make sure we know that we're going to do it the right way. And that's, uh, if you will, becoming all that God calls all of his kids to become. Uh, mature, grown up, fully equipped, uh, filled with all the fullness of Christ, to use some of that language. Since this is your first time on the podcast, let's uh, just break down what we're going to do. Um, I'll let you give a, a basic summarization of four to five minutes of the entire sermon, and then we'll go through the discussion questions, and we'll leave room for open conversation. Give us just a, a basic 20,000-foot view of what the sermon was about. If any church, if any Christian is going to, in actuality, meet their God-given potential, then they must be the vessel through which Jesus Christ operates wherever they are. Jesus has to be seen by those who would objectively consider what they're looking at. How do I explain that? How do I explain Bayside Chapel? Well, you know what? It must be this God, this Jesus that they talk about. So if you want a real high view, I mean, the big idea was that, to to let Jesus shine through us. So that's the real high view. I don't know if you need me to come down a little from there. If you want. This is is part of, you're a co-host in this. Oh, I see. Um, I'll let you know if you take the wheel too much, but okay. yeah, we'll, All right. we'll keep going. So with that idea that Christ needs to be seen through us, what Colossians 1 kind of reveals are three aspects uh, that this can happen or needs to happen. Number one, Paul says, Paul makes this comment uh, how he makes up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. It's a it's a strange statement. Uh, it's It's been kind of discussed and even debated by people, and I'm not smart enough to know exactly what he's saying. But the way I understand it is, is that um, if you're going to be committed to what Christ is committed to, there's going to be a price to be paid. Jesus' suffering is unique. When Paul uses uh, the word affliction here, 
he's not using the same uh, language that is used to describe Jesus' suffering on the cross. It is used to describe Jesus' suffering, if you will, as he did his earthly ministry. That's an aspect of the Lord's affliction that we don't necessarily take into account. It wasn't easy for the God-man to be on this planet all the time, you know. So I think that's what Paul is saying is that there's always going to be a price to be paid, and he's willing to pay it for the sake of the church. With that said, he then says first that he was made a minister. And it's this idea that if we're going to have Christ be seen through us, first and foremost, I need to understand what God has made me. What you are, what I am, what every believer in Christ is, is the result of God's activity, specifically through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Um, one of my biggest passions, Marcus, you know this by now, is that Christians would know who they are, what they are, what it means to be in Christ. Specifically, Paul says that he was made a minister, a servant. Um, and I think each of us needs to see ourselves that way. Uh, I think we make a mistake when we look at the Apostle Paul and go, well, that was Paul. Mm-hmm. And I even think that happened in Paul's own lifetime. This is why he says what he says to the Philippians. Work out your own salvation. He's talking about how they would be, how he wants them to behave, whether he's present or not. And then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So Paul's basically saying, look, the same, the same God that you see working through me is ready to work through you. And I think, you know, Christians fall into this trap of hierarchies. Well, there's Paul, and then there's my pastor, and then, you know. No, we all have the same Spirit of God. We all have the same Bible, if you will. And so we all have the exact same equipping and calling. It may manifest itself differently, but the calling is still the same. To be a, to be a servant, to be a, an available vessel, to be what, uh, in, in action, that which is the result of understanding what God has made me. So that's the first point. The second point is that he speaks of his mission, to fully carry out the word of God. And Paul's ministry was to do that. I, you know, Some Christians, I think, tend to see Paul more as the evangelist. Um, I think others see him more as a pastor. He was both. He was an evangelist. He was a church planter. He was a pastor. And what we see in the epistles particularly is Paul the pastor writing to the churches. What you see in Acts is more Paul the evangelist and church planter, if you will. Or rebel rouser, however you Or know. rebel, yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't afraid to, you know, to get a reaction. You look what happened at, I guess it's in Ephesus. You know, so um, so what you see here is that his his passion is for the sake of the church to fully carry out the word of God. That's an interesting language. He's going to tell us what this message is. He says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is absolutely critical for us to understand. But he's saying that my ministry to the church is to make that known. And in a context of evangelism, you can't do that. You, If you're trying to evangelize someone, you're not going to get into the other aspects of the gospel that talk about our union with Christ a whole lot. We're not going to get into the implications that he gets into, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2. You know, that when you were dead, you were raised with Christ. You were seated with Christ. Those aspects of the, the gospel are the things we need to know for sanctification. In the context of evangelism, he's putting forth the truth of our sinful condition and what God has done to address it. 
by making uh, a foreign righteousness available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Think of, if you if you if you know Romans, Romans lays out just like that. And so you see certain aspects of how he would handle, uh, I think, someone in an evangelistic context in the first few chapters of Romans. But then as you get to the middle chapters, particularly 6, 7, and 8, you're seeing a different dynamic of the gospel that's being laid out for a different purpose. Right. So the mission is to make the word of God fully known to the church. Why? Because... That message is going to reinforce the fact that it's got to be Christ and not us. And then thirdly, uh, how we go about that, and this is where he says, I toil, uh, striving with all of his energy that mightily works in me. So as we do this work, uh, it's a matter of taking hold of what God has made available to us, his resources, his energy, his spirit, uh, his agenda, those sorts of things. So it's a very... uh, Christ-centered understanding of who I am, what I'm here to do, and how I am to do it. So yeah, one of the the things that's consistent about Paul's writings is he talks about the point that living for Jesus is going to cost. It could be comforts, it could be earthly rewards, friendships, your work experiences. And, And so in the discussions questions, you ask why is it important to apply what Paul says about himself to each of us as followers of Jesus? Paul talks about the pain, the thorn in the flesh, whether that's a physical thing or if that is a a metaphorical language. I mean, I wouldn't put a past him for it to be metaphorical because of the the language that he likes to use a lot of the time. And that may be what he's referring to here in Colossians. Yeah. That he makes up, you know, that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That may be a similar thing. I don't know. Yeah. So... Any other points as to why it's important that, that we apply what Paul says about himself? Yeah, because other, to, to the point I just made, otherwise what happens is we create this separation. You know, Well, God called Paul to that sort of thing, not me. Right. So I think the reason why it's so important to apply what Paul says about himself to us is because it's the same God, it's the same Great Commission, it's the same provision, so that uh, it's important to apply what Paul says about himself so that we do not see ourselves too differently right. than Paul. The calling is the same. The mission is the same. The provision is the same. It will just take different paths. It'll, it'll, it'll take different shapes, but it's ultimately operating from that same, that same understanding. And, and Paul makes other points about that. I, I can't remember where it is. He says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize many of you. Yeah. Because he, you know, that, that could be a sense of pride. Yeah. And so taking that in the other, other one, direction sure. that, uh, you know, so it was I who watered it, and Apollos, Apollos, yeah. Apollos did this, and you know, it's all through Christ. But the foundation, yeah, right. And and so, yeah, whether f- whatever our gifting is that God has blessed us with, we need to pursue that and and seek it out. And if we don't know what our gifting is, there are ways to to figure what that is. There's mechanics to to look at. Well, you're good at this. Mm. Here's how you know we see this manifestation in this but based on just your personality. So it's very easy for us to, to help people figure out what their gift is. Mm-hmm. So in verse 25, you spend a lot of time there talking about how Paul was made a minister. Yeah. Other uh, versions say commissioned according to the stewardship from God. Mm-hmm. So that word minister 
in the Greek uh, is, is, a, is a certain word that a lot of times people refer to. Uh, and I don't do a whole lot of Greek, but the, the word is diakonos. Yeah. And some of you may be more familiar with that. Uh, it's, it has several meanings in the original language. And you, you mentioned that he's using that word as a servant, uh, you know, a minister, a servant. And in certain instances, that can also be translated as deacon. Mm-hmm. While that word is used in, I believe it's Acts 7, where they, they, they selected the first round of people to take care, wait the tables and take care yeah. of the widows. Those were, were people that were selected to be deacons. Yeah, a lowly servant. Yeah. Yeah, a common servant. That's, that was the distinction, I think. Yeah. And that really needs to set our heart as to how we see ourselves in a relationship to Jesus. 2 Timothy 2 talks about in, in the master's house, there are vessels of gold and vessels of wood. And it doesn't matter which one is which. Both can be used for good or for bad. And so it's how we uh, approach God, whether if we're, we see ourselves as the golden vessels or the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the simple wooden clay. Another, this, uh, if, if I may, another yeah. way of thinking about that is you know, God can use anything. Yeah. You know, uh, I won't say it in the, on the podcast uh, the way I might say it privately, but you'll get the gist. If God could speak through a donkey in the Old Testament, he could use someone who's sometimes very much like a donkey, like me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not about the vessel. As we look at the last several years uh, going through this pandemic, we see how God is using different elements of the way that we've lived our last hundred years since the last major pandemic of the Spanish flu, how we thought our lives were set this certain way and this was the the normal way to do things. Yeah. And then God comes in with, here's this, deal with it. And we move forward in a completely different way. And God resets the, the table sometimes on how we do ministry. Yeah. That's true. So how does the understanding that we have been entrusted by God, like stewards, is what Paul, uh, what Paul is talking about, how does that motivate us to be fruitful to whatever he calls us to? And we've been tasked with making the word of God fully known to the world. So when we know this is what God is asking us to do. Go forth and, and, and teach and preach. How can we be better stewards? What, what, what can we do to prepare our hearts to be better about that? Well, first of all, um, remember something. When he, when he uses this language about making the Word of God fully known, uh, again, he is referring that to the church. When we talk about well, making it known to the world, maybe I'm wrong here, but I tend to hear that in the context of evangelism, which is absolutely essential. But you're not going to make the Word of God fully known in an evangelistic context. Uh, there is the responsibility to make disciples, not just converts. Uh, insofar as, um, you know, what can we do to be better stewards, if you will? Um, I- I'll be honest, I think the answer is very simple. Know what it means to ha- be connected to Jesus Christ. Uh, what does it mean for you to be in Christ? That's critical because of the security, the rest, uh, the confidence it brings, the dependence it brings. Know what it means for Christ to be in you. So if I want to be a better steward, um, I simply need to uh, to be filled with the Spirit, to be under His control. 
Because ultimately, I can, I can think in terms of, well, you know, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better steward. God's entrusted a work to me. And this is the danger here about, about this idea of advancing and overflowing. Because that's all great in and of itself. But if we lose sight of the fact that, it, that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, then we're going to be in trouble. It's just, not, it's just not going to count, no matter how good it looks. So to me, a person is a good steward when he realizes that the one who has entrusted me to manage his affairs is the one who has provided everything I need through dependence on him to manage those affairs. So the key, I think, is faith. Yeah. Yeah. In him. Faith in him. Yeah. Now, another point you made in the sermon was um, preaching a half gospel. (laughs) So that we kind of clear up any confusion as to what we mean here. Can we take just a moment to clarify what the whole gospel is? Yeah. So at, at Bayside, we have people from different religious backgrounds. We have some with no background at all. Right. So can we take a moment just to go over the, the statements of faith that we that we believe here at Bayside? Well, I can't The main qu- tenets of our faith. Yeah, I can't quote them verbatim. No, 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 no. no, no, no I'm not asking is... you to get out the book. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, obviously, the Bible is absolutely authoritative. It is... Uh, not something that's the result of God dictating, but men who are carried along by the Spirit. That's why their personalities come through, uh, people's personalities come through in the pages of the Scripture, specifically in regard to the person of Jesus Christ. What I mean by a preaching a half a gospel is that evangelicals, in my life experience, and I think it's particularly true uh, for, the, for at least a major portion of the 20th century, uh, for whatever reason, uh, we've started getting really good at pointing people to uh, their sin, the fin- the work of Christ on the cross to pay for their sin. Half a gospel basically leaves us at the end of Romans chapter 5. That God loves you. We were born with this thing called sin. It was something that was true of me the moment I was conceived, the Bible says. We are sinners at birth, not because of anything we've done, but because it's, I'll use a theological term, been imputed to us. We were in Adam. This is Romans 5. So what does God do? For our sake, he sends Jesus Christ. He puts our sin on Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And so we're referring to Christ's substitutionary payment for your sin and mine, whereby I am forgiven cleansed by his shed blood, and now justification is provided through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You ask most Christians, I did it yesterday. I did it yesterday with a couple that had been saved for years. What happened at the cross? And I get the same answer from every Christian because you can't be a Christian if you don't understand this. Jesus died for my sin. He shed his blood. I'm cleansed. What else happened at the cross? And they'll look at you and go, um, you know, may, maybe they'll talk about how God, you know, uh, uh, poured out his anger on Christ, you know. Uh, but what you never hear, at least not the Christians I've talked to, and quite frankly, Marcus, I didn't understand it even as a pastor, was that the other thing that happened at the cross is that the person that you and I were born as, the sinner we were, was crucified with Christ. This is Romans 6. And so that's what I mean. And I'm not, look, I didn't coin the phrase half a gospel. That phrase has been around for a long, long time. 
This is at the heart of uh, what was known as, for example, as the Keswick Movement in the late 19th century in England, where what was being emphasized was not just Christ's death for me at the cross, but my co-death and co-resurrection with Christ, um, as it's revealed in Romans chapter 6, as is summarized in Galatians 2.20. Um, it can be illustrated, this, this principle of a half-gospel can actually be illustrated in the life and ministry of Moses and the experience of the people of Israel. Moses, if you will, preached a half-gospel a in that he was able to get the people out. Mm -hmm but he wasn't able to bring them in. Right. wasn't a complete gospel. It wasn't finished. Yeah, it wasn't complete. Major Ian Thomas, who's an author that Pastor Dave introduced me to and whom we both love, basically said, in essence, Moses left Christ on the cross. What are the implications? We, we get the implications of Christ died for me. And we get implications of his resurrection. Well, that means that the price has been paid. You know, the work is done. It's been satisfied. What are the implications of a resurrected Christ who lives in you? That's what I mean by the second, the other aspect of the gospel. There are implications of an indwelling Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why I said in the sermon, Jesus didn't die on a cross just so that we could go to heaven. Because if he did, then what in the world are we doing here? And so that's really become a major passion of mine, as you know now. Uh, particularly it began to happen about 10 or 12 years ago for me. And that's why, I think that's why Ken asked me to preach this passage from Colossians, because it talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but that's how, you know. So this week we received a question from the, the congregation wanting some clarification about the statement, Christ in us. Yeah. And this is a very valid question. And that's I think, a great question. And I think it, it, it's a matter of semantics. Um, the, the question is, uh, if Christ is in us, is the Holy Spirit in us as well at the same time? Yeah. And do they have different roles? Uh, this person also states, I was always taught that the Holy Spirit was what dwells in us. So, one of the, the passages that I, I like to turn to when we, we talk about some of these more difficult things uh, of this indwelling uh, is is John chapter 17. Now, this is the high priestly prayer that Jesus is praying in the garden. Very difficult passage uh, to understand sometimes, but it's what I, I've grown to appreciate about this passage is that Jesus' prayer here is not just for the 12. Mm. He's praying this for all who will come to him. Yeah, through their message. Through the message. Mm -hmm. And so that is a, a forward-looking uh, prayer. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, yeah. so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Mm -hmm. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Mm. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Mm. And there's there's a lot of, of I and you, me and them. And, and, <laughs> it, and so... All these pronouns. Yeah. 
I had a, 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 a college professor explain to me that this is a, a reciprocating indwelling, that when you think of like a reciprocating system, yeah. it's one blade, it's going back and forth, and, and so there's there's action happening because one is in the other, and it, it's it's a, a, a fluid movement. Uh, and, and also John records in, in chapter 14, talking about the Holy Spirit, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. And down in verse 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is saying a couple of interesting things here. Uh, he will physically be going away when he dies. God will be sending the Holy Spirit to us in Jesus' name. And that he also says there, I will come to you. So I believe this is this whole question is, is not an either-or situation. It's a both-and uh, because of the unity in the Godhead. Yeah. Um, and in John 14, he says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, I am in you. So the, the, the key word here, believe it or not, is this little word, in. Jesus refers to it, Paul refers to it 90 times in his letters. Uh, in him, in whom, in Christ. All of this is the language of union, of a living, flowing union that Jesus likens to the life force of a vine flowing through the branches unto the bearing of fruit. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, ultimately the question is, well, is this the Spirit of God? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the Spirit of Jesus? Is it Jesus? What is it? For whatever reason, the Lord himself and the Apostle Paul use these phrases interchangeably. So there's your both and, if you will, uh, particularly in Romans 8. L- listen to Romans 8 for just a minute, uh, picking up in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, implication, Holy Spirit, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Same verse. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to... Wait a minute, Paul. You got the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of... So, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit, who is the one operating through the Apostle Paul, and the Lord Jesus himself, seem to use these different phrases interchangeably about the same reality. And that is the, the deity indwelling his creation. That which was promised in the Old Testament in the New Covenant language in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. When we speak of our union with Christ, again, it is, yes, I'm in him, as opposed to, now, as opposed to having been in Adam, right? Well, Colossians said we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. I was in Adam. There are a lot of things that were true of me because of that. I now am in Christ. Everything that was true of me in Adam has now been brought to an end because we're in Christ. But at the same time, Christ is in us. And so when we speak of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, we're talking about that aspect of our union, that Christ is in us. So really, the re- it's, it's, one, it's one Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. But the, the, the Scriptures will use phrases like, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, you know, Jesus Christ lives in me uh, interchangeably. So now I hope that we haven't made things less clear. <laughs> and let's move on to the to the discussion question that, that deals with this. 
So why is it so critical to embrace the rest of the gospel, which involves Christ in us? And we've kind of touched on this, but just to kind of... Yeah, to be specific, because we can't do what we're called to do. We cannot do what we are called to do. Uh, I cannot be the Christian husband I'm called to be. My wife cannot be the Christian wife she's called to be. We cannot be the church we're called to be apart from an intentional choice to depend on Christ. Not a distant Christ, not a Christ who's out there somewhere, but a Christ who's living in and through us. And all we need to do is have an attitude of faith, of uh, humble, dependent availability for him to operate in and through us as he sees fit. One of the ways we need to present ourselves as representatives of Christ is to empty ourselves, that that humbleness, uh, to be ready for his good. And there's a, a metaphor that I like to use. It's, it's like eating a glass from the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Is that glass empty? No, it's full of air. Mm-hmm. If we are to satisfy our thirst, we must fill it with water. In doing so, we force out all the useless, unquenchable air, and fill our glass with the everlasting water of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, with this in mind, how does the truth that we labor according to all of God's energy free us from that pressure? Because we recognize that he's the source. I think it's freeing because I realize that there's this inexhaustible supply available to me through my dependence on him. Uh, that it's not on me. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to get tired. Right. Um, Jesus slept. He took yeah, naps. Right. We but should I follow that does, example. I, I think an understanding of that does keep us from getting burned out. Yeah. You know, when, when, you, when you preach this aspect of the gospel, the mistaken conclusion that someone can come to is, well, then all I really need to be is this passive spiritual couch potato type. No, that, you don't see that anywhere demonstrated in the scriptures, and you, don't even, and you even see commands to the contrary. So we're to be active in our dependence. It takes work for me to trust God. It takes a work of recognizing how easily I want to insert myself. There's a certain effort, I think, that is, in, is required um, to make clear to myself and to express to God that I'm trusting you in this. I don't, I don't think it takes as much effort to do things based on me. I think it takes more effort to remember that I need to get out of the way. Right. Yeah. Well, that's not our culture. You know, it's... Oh, no. You're self-made. Oh, yeah. You've got to do it yourself. You, you can't... And that's a completely backwards view of what Jesus was teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, we always have faith. We always operate from faith. The problem is, what's the object? And our natural tendency is to trust ourselves, our systems, our success, what's worked in the past. That's exactly the problem that happened to Moses. Why does he strike the rock a second time after God tells him to speak to it? He's frustrated. It worked before. And it looked good. It looked good. Everybody goes, yay, we got the water. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. Meanwhile, God's going, because you've done this, you're not going to lead this people into into the land I promised to give them. So sometimes we can look really good out of our self-reliance and not even know we're doing it. That, at least that was true for me. I didn't even know I was doing it. We often put blinders on when we you know, look at ourselves and try to figure out, how am I going to make it through this week? Yeah. 
you know, and it it it's not about us. No, it's not. So, your final question: What can we do to learn more of what is implied by the truth that God waits to live through us? Let me let me let me answer your question with a question. Absolutely. On a scale from one to ten, how well does the average evangelical know his New Testament? Would you give the average evangelical, the average Baptist type, would you give them a really high grade on how well they know the truth of the New Testament, let alone the whole Bible? No. Whether if it's from a lack of trying to learn it, believing that they can learn it, being told just listen to you know the sermon on Sunday mm-hmm. that this is enough. We I mean, even if we gave them a seven out of ten, which is very gracious. That's a C minus. I was yeah. a school teacher. That was a, that's a C minus. Yeah. Really? Jesus said, "Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth." And here's the other thing: you can have you can have Christians who know the Bible, but they don't know the truth of it. That was my upbringing. Was book, chapter, verse. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of the concerns I always had about Awana was that it fed that. I know, it's, I know what it says. I just don't know what it means. Right. Right. To, to write his word on our hearts. Yeah. We got to do more than just writing it. We got to understand what it's being written. Yeah. So the answer to your question is, I just want to see Christians know the gospel. I'm not so concerned that they know, you know, when Assyria took away the northern kingdom, okay? Do you know the gospel? To the look, to the extent that we do not know something, we can't apply it. I don't care what it is. Well, to the extent that I don't know the gospel, if if my conviction is even half true, there is still an unsatisfactory aspect in the modern Christian church because what I, what I mean by that is when I talk about a half a gospel. So let's say. Let's let's say I'm not quite correct in that. Let's say I'm 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 overreacting to that. But there's a degree to which we're not. And to the degree to which we are not, we rob ourselves of that which the Bible says is the power of God for salvation. And what what, what comes up what, what you'll see as you reason through it is, gee, you know, this is not just some sophisticated list of things for me to do. This is this is revealing the author. Right. And the author wants to be revealed through me. How much do I think biblically? I cannot tell you. Now, it may be the nature of the folks who come to us for help, right? Um, uh, you sit down with someone and they're going through a thing. And you'll, ask, you'll say something like, um, so if anyone is in Christ, and they look at me like, now, what am I expecting them to say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? Well, is that just the purview of the pastor to know that? I just want to see our people be people who know the book, or at least the, the, at least the last third of the book, <laughs> you know? So as we come to our close of our time today, I generally ask if there was anything that didn't make the sermon. So if there was a direct, <laughs> any di- directorial cuts that you want to share. Well, first of all, something happened after first service. So for those folks who, who might hear this and were at first service, 
there's something I did second service I didn't think to do in first. Um, we got done, and I went, oh, man. And I knew, I'm like, there's an illustration. I'm missing an illustration. I knew that. I knew it. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then it hit me uh, right after first service. And so what I did is I asked Pastor James to run home and grab his baseball glove. He didn't have it in his office? No. Oh, man. And I did put it on, even though it belongs to a Red Sox fan. But I watched thoroughly after. <laughs> no, but he, he brought back his baseball glove. And here's the illustration. You put a baseball glove on a stand and you toss a ball at it. What do you expect? It's not going to catch the ball. It's absolutely helpless on its own. This illustrates this idea of why it's so important to understand that it's Christ in us. Well, my hand is Christ in the glove, and now it can do what it's been designed to do. So um, I was able to show that uh, in second service, uh, but I wasn't—I I didn't think to have it in first service. So that was one thing that came to me uh, in regard to that. The other thing, I guess, would be that everything that Paul is talking about there is actually something that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I made reference to it a few minutes ago. This is part of the new covenant that we are grafted into and that God promised centuries before Christ came through the prophet Jeremiah and through Ezekiel. And I will put my spirit in you. But the original, once I had finished the draft, it was about 4,000 words. I cut about 500 out of it. And it was still a little bit long, I think. Thank you, Pastor Joe, for joining us. Thank you. Uh, we, we enjoy these conversations. Next week, Pastor Ken will be speaking with us, and we are talking about advancing the second aspect, the second aspect of our revision. And have a blessed week. <laughs>